name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I want to tell you a little story. A seminary professor was on vacation with his wife, and they were in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and they were eating one breakfast one morning and just wanting to be by themselves. And uh, they noticed this distinguished-looking white-haired gentleman kind of going from table to table visiting the guest. And the professor whispered under, under his breath to his wife, oh, man, I hope he doesn't come over to our table. But he does. He comes over to their table. He says, where are you folks from, in a friendly voice? And they said, well, we're from Oklahoma. And he said, well, great to have you here in Tennessee. He said, what do you do for a living? And the man said, well, I'm a, I'm a seminary teacher. He said, oh, so you teach preachers how to preach, do you? He said, I have a really great story for you. And this time he pulls up a chair and he sits down at their table. And uh, the professor groaned inwardly and he uh, thought to himself, great, this is just what I need this morning. Uh, Another preacher story. Well, the man begins to speak, and he says, see that mountain over there? And he points outside one of the windows there in the restaurant. He says, not far from the base of that mountain, there was a boy born to an unwed woman uh, who had a hard time growing up because everyone wanted to uh, know who the boy's father was. So they would always ask him, who's your daddy? So whether he was at school or in the grocery store or drugstore, people would ask him, who's your daddy? And, and he just hated that. In fact, would basically hide himself from people because that question actually hurt him. When he was 12 years old, uh, a new preacher came to their church and he would always go in late, sleep, slip out early, so he would avoid the question, uh, son, who's your daddy? But this one particular morning, he hesitated, didn't get out quite as early as he needed to, and the, the pastor beat him to the back. And so he's going out with the crowd and as he comes to the pastor the pastor asks him that question he says son who's who's your daddy and the the whole church grew quiet Uh, every eye was on the boy wanting to hear the answer to this question and then this new pastor evidently just filled with the holy spirit just you know a discernment that could have only come from god um, he looked down at the scared little boy. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. And he said to the boy, you are a child of God. And he patted the young boy on the head and shoulder and, and the boy left. He said, boy, as the boy left, he said, boy, you have a great inheritance. Go and claim it. And with that, the boy smiled for the first time in a long time, walked out of the door, a changed man. And so when anyone ever asked that little boy, who's your daddy? He would always say from that point on, well, I'm a child of God. Well, the distinguished gentleman got up from the table and said, isn't that a great story? And, uh, and the professor responded, yeah, that really was. Um, and as the man turned to leave, he said back to the, to the professor, he said, you know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably never would have amounted to anything. And he walked away. Well, the seminary professor, of course, and his wife, they're stunned. They called the waitress over and they said, do you know that distinguished gentleman that was just sitting at our table? And the waitress said, of course, everybody knows him. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of Tennessee. I wonder this morning, so here's my question, and this is going to be the theme of today's talk, okay? I wonder, is God your daddy? That's my question for us. Is God your daddy? 
There is a sense, a biblical sense, in which God is the father of all creation, but not everyone can call God Papa. Not everyone can call God Daddy. Not everyone can call God Abba. We're studying John's gospel. We have a number of guests here this morning because of the wedding, and we're really glad that you're here. We're studying John's gospel, and we find ourselves in John chapter 8, and we're going to begin with verse 37 in just a few moments. Let me set the context just as a reminder for all of us. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem for the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths. Now, John chapter 8, 1 through 11 probably doesn't fit there, so really everything is, that we're seeing and taking place in John chapter 8 is probably happening at the festival of tabernacles. And on the very last day, it seems like anyway, when they lit the great candelabra there in the temple courts, Jesus cried out, I am the light of the world. And we looked at what he said there, the beginning of the chapter, earlier in the chapter. And then last week, I haven't had an opportunity to listen to Marshall's message. Uh, message because it didn't get recorded because of technical difficulties, but um, I know Marshall spoke to you about freedom, which was another subject that Jesus addressed with the pharisaical leadership that is there in the temple talking to him. When we begin in verse 37, in just a second, the, the, the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees is augmenting. It's getting worse. It's getting more hostile. It's getting more vitriolic, as you'll see in just a moment. In fact, this is very confrontational, what we'll see to the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, if you don't, if you have your Bible on a tablet or, or, or a, a phone, I'm going to be doing the CSB. I'm going to be using the CSB for my talk. That's the Christian Standard Bible, if you wanted to follow along in that one. We have some Bibles on the back table in the foyer. You know, it's really going to be helpful to you to have a Bible this morning. So if you don't have one, feel free to go back to the foyer and get one. There's some on the foyer there. And we'll begin reading in verse 37. Jesus is speaking and he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father. You do what you've heard from your father. Jesus says to the religious leaders, I know you're Jews. I know that you're part of God's chosen nation, that you were born of the descendancy of Abraham, but you reject me and you are actually seeking to kill me. I speak of what I have seen, he says, what I know from God my Father, but my words mean actually nothing to you because you are listening to your Father. And Jesus says for the first time, you have a different, you have a different Father. They have a different daddy. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. They, they, they zero in on that last part and they said, nope, Abraham is our father. They seem to get the implication of what Jesus is implying and they want it to be clear. No, we, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father what your father did. Jesus is undeterred in his point. He says, if you really were Abraham's children, he's taking issue with what they just said. And by the way, can I tell you that the apostle Paul tells us who the true sons of Abraham are? In Galatians, in a letter, in other parts of your New Testament, in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says, so then, God 
does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or is it by believing what you heard? Now listen, just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. God considers Abraham's true sons to be those who are like him who put their faith in God. If they were really sons of Abraham, Jesus says, then you would be doing what he is doing. That is that you would believe God. You would believe God when I come and speak for God because I'm speaking for him, but instead you're trying to kill me. You're not listening. You're not hearing God. You're not being like Abraham. And again, he says it. You are doing what your father would do. And for the second time, he says to them pretty clearly, you have a different, you have a different father. They, they get it. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And, and you can just imagine if you're there this morning, if you're in this exchange in the temple, they've been arguing about a number of things. It's getting more and more pronounced. The heat is rising. They're getting angrier. And really what they say to Jesus is, a, is a, an aspersion. They, they are really saying, we are not born of sexual immorality. You are. You remember Jesus was born to an unwed mother. In a day and time when, you know, that would have been really anathema. In our day, in our culture, it, it doesn't matter, right? In fact, to be married amongst millennials who are not following Jesus, it is the thing to do today, to, get, to live together without marriage, to have children without marriage. And, and yet, in this day, that was not the case, and they are really insulting Jesus and, and implying, you're a bastard son. You, you are born with no daddy, you know? That's what they're saying to him. But as for us... They wanted to be really clear. God is our father. Not, not, not just Abraham. They get what Jesus is saying. God is our father. Verse 42. Jesus goes right back at them. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Up to this point, Jesus has been somewhat cryptic. He's not cryptic anymore. He's very, very clear and very direct in what he is going to charge them with. He rebukes their claim. He said, if you were really one of God's children, if God really were your father, then you would love me. And he goes on to say two reasons why they don't love him. They don't love him. Number one, he says, I came, why they would love him if they were of God. He says, because I came from God. I came from heaven. I left the glory of heaven and came down here. So you see, if you were really of God, you would know that. And the second reason he says they're not of God is because he says, God sent me. And you would know that as well. You would know that God sent me if you were really of God. I didn't come here on my own initiative. This wasn't my idea. This was God's idea. I think, of course, Jesus as God is, is talking about it's not his individual idea. It was the, the idea of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit to send the Lord Jesus. He's asked them this rhetorical question. Why don't you see this? 
Why don't you get this? And then he tells them, he says, because you are of your father, the devil. And he actually names their father. Now, a little bit of of language uh, instruction. The word devil is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word satan. So the word Satan and the word devil are really the same word, just like Messiah and Christ are the same word. Messiah being Hebrew, Christ being Greek, Satan being Hebrew, devil being uh, the Greek word. And they, they mean this. It means this, the adversary. It means the accuser. So the question would be the adversary of what? The accuser of what? Well, the adversary of God. And the accuser of people who don't follow God or who are trying to follow God. This this person, he says that you are the sons of this person. He's the adversary. He's the adversary to God. Now, that doesn't mean he's equal with God. In fact, I meant to comment on my, uh, on my graphic up there. You know, that implies that, uh, that, the, that the accuser and God are somehow equal. They're not equal at all, right? He is the accuser. He is the adversary to God. Jesus says, you are of your father, the adversary. Then he tells us some things about the adversary. He says he's a murderer and a liar, and he was that from the very beginning. And he says, the truth of God is not in you because he's your father, not God. In fact, he says, everyone whose heart is inclined towards God does not suppress the truth, but listens to the truth. It is those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness who are not of God. And by the way, that's that's most, most of the world. Most of the world is suppressing the truth of God's revelation. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I love this. In argumentation, listen to this. When somebody doesn't have a, a, a way to refute your argument, you know what they do? They start calling you names. They don't deal with the argument. They, they deal with, oh, you're this or you're that and instead of dealing with the argument, right? They don't deal with the argument anymore. They say, oh, you're a Samaritan. Oh, you have a demon. And Jesus doesn't let it stand, verse 49. He says, I, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I don't know, can you feel the tension rising in this, in this exchange between them? It is definitely, the, the heat is there. Jesus says, I don't have a demon. You, I'm here to honor God, but you dishonor me. You refuse to honor God because you refuse to honor me, he says. I don't seek my own glory. God is the one who is glorifying me, and God is going to be your judge one day. And then Jesus makes this tremendous statement in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't mean that, uh, that we will not die. In fact, he'd be contradicting other parts of the word of God if that's what he meant. Because the word of God says that the wages of sin is death. All of us are sinners. And the Bible says that all men are appointed to death and then the judgment. All men die because they're all appointed to death and then the judgment. So that's not what Jesus means. I personally believe that Jesus is referencing the second death of Revelation chapter 21, I think it is. That they will not be cast into the lake of fire. 
Uh, to Martha, Jesus said something really similar to this. Acknowledging that we all at least die, Jesus said to her in their exchange about Lazarus, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I think Jesus is promising eternal life, resurrection from the dead and to a life that never ends. Verse 52. The Jews, they... they don't understand that. They think he's talking about dying physically. The Jews, verse 52, said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus isn't talking about the physical first death that all of us will go through. He's talking about the eternal death, and the death from which there is no resurrection. And my guess, he is somewhat speaking still cryptically. He's still, he's still being vague enough for, for them to misunderstand him in this particular case. And they are incensed by his implications. They are saying, what are you saying? Abraham died, all the prophets died. Are you saying you're never going to die? Are you saying anybody that follows you is never going to die from here on out. And again, again, that's not what Jesus is saying. Because the Bible says Jesus knows it's appointed for all of us to die once and then the judgment. He's talking about, he's talking about the judgment of God and the, and the death that's coming at the end of judgment. Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. And your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus continues, this father that you claim to serve, this father God that you claim to have, he's the one who is glorifying me. And if I were to say to you today, I don't know him, I would be a liar like you because I do know him. I came from him. He sent me here. I do know him and I speak for him. And then he says, furthermore, and again, I mean, this is, you know, Jesus is digging everybody. Jesus is, uh, I mean, he's, he's digging He's digging. He's not just being passive here. And uh, he says, furthermore, I want you to know, Abraham rejoiced in knowing my day was coming, and he saw it, and he was glad. Now, how did Abraham see Jesus' day and rejoice in it? My own personal thought is not that Abraham saw it with literal eyes, but rather he saw it with eyes of faith. I used to always think that Abraham and a lot of the forefathers, they just did not really understand the concept of Messiah. They didn't understand that, that Messiah would come and die for us. I, don't, I didn't think they got that. I, I got to tell you that this week in study, I, I, I've, I'm wondering whether I was right on that. Because this passage seems to say that Abraham saw the day of Jesus and he was glad in it. So it seems to imply that Abraham had some concept of Messiah coming to die for us. Now Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, and I quote him, How did Abraham see Christ's day? I answer, first by a far-seeing, clear-sighted faith. I do not know what revelation, which is not recorded, God may have made to Abraham, whether he had in night visions, as Daniel did, beheld the king sitting on his throne. But Whatever he did know, he turned to practice, practical use by believing it, unquote. 
In Hebrews, it tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I, I believe that Abraham, by faith, saw the day that Jesus was coming. That's what Jesus said. And he was actually glad in it. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you, and have you seen Abraham? So this really is puzzling to me. It's not that Abraham saw Jesus' day that bothers them. It's somehow that in what he says, it seems to imply that Jesus knew Abraham. And that's what really gets under their skin. And they say, you're not even 50 years old. How could you have seen Abraham who, who lived two millennia ago? How, how could that possibly be? And uh, Jesus responds to them immediately, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that statement in English seems like just bad English, doesn't it? Before Abraham was, I am. It just doesn't make good English sense. But Jesus is, is literally saying this. He's literally claiming to be the God of Israel. In the Old Testament, Moses uh, has this encounter with God by this burning bush that isn't consumed. It makes him go and watch it. Why is it burning and not being consumed? And God speaks to him there, sends him back to Egypt to free his people. And one of the things that Moses asks God, he says, what do I call you? You know, who do I say is sending me? And, and God says, tell them that I am is sending you. And that's the name, Yahweh, that, 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 and I'm not sure how that works, it has to do with not saying the consonants, you know, and all that, but, but Yahweh literally means I am in Hebrew, and they thought, the Jews thought the name of God was so sacred they wouldn't say it, and so they, they kind of disguise it in Yahweh, I'm not sure how that works exactly, but, but here's my point, when Jesus says before Abraham, how can you be 50 years old and know Abraham? Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh, I am God. He's, he's making a claim to being God. Now, Jesus would make this claim a couple more times before he would be crucified. To Philip, he would say, when Philip says, show us God, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In his prayer for his disciples at the end, he said, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And he prayed for us, everyone. Of course, you know that, don't you? He said, don't just pray for them, Father. I'm praying for everybody who's going to believe in them, believe in me because of them. That's us. Then he says in his prayer, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oh, I must have skipped the part I wanted to read. Here it is. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in, in you. Now, their response makes it really clear that they understood what Jesus was saying. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They're so angry. They, they don't care about Roman law. They don't care about whether the Jewish people would rebel against them or not. They, they try to find stones to throw at Jesus. Now, remember this. They're in the temple. There's probably not a lot of stones in the temple. So when they're busy trying to gather their stones, the Bible says Jesus walks out of the temple and they do not have a chance to stone them. God protects Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 31, just to make this clear, 
the Jews, again, picked up stones to stone. This is a different situation. We'll come to it in a few weeks. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For, for which of these are you going to stone me? And then they say, we are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you being a mere man claim to be God. So that's what happens in this passage. And the exchange ends there. Jesus walks out. They're really angry, trying to find rocks to throw at him. And he, uh, and he leaves. So what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is I'd like to walk back through the passage. And this time I'd like to just, in this exchange between them, I'd like to recap some of the big ideas. Maybe you caught them, but I just want to single them out for us. So here we go. Here's the first one. First big idea. Just because you were a descendant of Abraham didn't mean that you were part of God's true Israel. I've been making this point an awful lot lately, and I really want you to get this. Just because you are biological Israel, descendant from Abraham ethnically, does not mean that you comprise God's true Israel. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says the reason that Israel as a nation isn't following is because not all of Israel is the true Israel. Not all of Israel is Israel. There is a difference between God's Israel by faith and God's Israel biologically. And Jesus is saying to them, just because you are descended ethnically from Abraham does not, by virtue of that, make you a part of God's saved, redeemed people. See, that comes by faith. That doesn't come by your birth. It comes by, by faith. They were descendants from Abraham, but they were not sons of Abraham by faith. There is a difference. Big truth number two from this exchange. Just because God is your creator, it doesn't mean that God is your father. I think I had those points messed up, and I, I think I had them backwards. I meant to fix that. Um, it doesn't mean that God is your father. And let's be honest, and, and, and let's point out that the Bible does seem to say in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, there is a verse that seems to speak of God's paternity over all men. Let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 28 of Acts 17, it says, for, this is Paul arguing with the philosophers in Athens. And he says, For in God we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Verse 29, since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human heart and imagination. So Paul seems to allude in that exchange with those philosophers that God is sort of the creator and father of all men. And uh, he is, by virtue of his creativity and his being creator, we can say that he is the progenitor of all men. We all have our being from him. But, but there is a difference between God being the one who created us and us having a father-child relationship with God. And that is what Jesus means when he says, just because you know, you've been created doesn't mean that you are, you are one of God's children. God created all of mankind and desires this father-son, father-daughter relationship with him. But just because you exist and just because God made you, it doesn't mean that you automatically have that relationship. Let's look at, here's the third big point. Jesus seemed, this is from the, the, the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees in the temple. Jesus seems to imply, now listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Some of you are going to object. That's all right. Jesus seems to imply that you are either a child of God or you are a child of God's adversary. And there doesn't seem to be any middle ground 
between those two. You either are a child of God or you are a child of God's adversary. Now, I believe that most of us want to believe that there's a middle ground. I'll bet you that I couldn't ask one in a thousand people, uh, if you were, are you a child of God or a child of the devil? They would say, well, I'm a child of God's adversary. I don't think one in a thousand people would say that, right? But if I were to ask you, do you have a a daddy-daughter relationship with God? Do you have a father-daddy-son relationship with God? I'm I'm not sure all that many people would say, well, yeah, that's how I'd characterize my relationship with God, that that he's my father-dad in that kind. I don't know if I'd do that. We want to be somewhere in the middle. We want to be somewhere in the middle. If this, is, if this crowd on the left, over, my left, is, is the crowd that has a daddy relationship with God, and this is the crowd that has a, no, no offense, has a daddy relationship with the adversary, so many of us want to walk in the aisle right there in the middle and not really be, not really be either. But Jesus seems to say there is no aisle in the middle. Let's listen to what he says. He, this is Jesus on another occasion. He says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In Revelation chapter 3, there's the letters to the churches, and the one to Laodicea. You remember the one to Laodicea? That's the church that's neither hot nor cold. And we could argue whether hot and cold are both good things because there were two cities near Laodicea, one known for its hot springs, one known for its ice cold springs, right? So we could argue Jesus is saying, I want you to be good, not bad, right? But most of us always have interpreted that. God says, I just don't want you to be lukewarm. And really, that is the case. He does not want us to be lukewarm. There's no, there's no middle aisle, it seems like, from what Jesus is saying. It's interesting, is it not? It's interesting that the people in this story, they thought they were children of God. They said, we are Abraham's sons. And then they said, we have one father, even God. And Jesus says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Your father is the adversary. Your father is the one who's contrary to God. And yet they thought differently. It's easy to be mistaken. Shouldn't be, but it's easy to be mistaken. Here's the fourth big truth. Jesus gives two characteristics of God's children and two of Satan's children. God's children honor Jesus. If you reject Jesus, I want to tell you something. You are rejecting, you're rejecting the God who sent him. And if you suppress the truth of God that's given to you through through creation, through revelation, through his word, if you suppress that, then you will not turn to Jesus. The, the, the characteristics of God's kids, of, of those who have a daddy relationship with God, they honor the Lord Jesus. Satan's kids, here, here are the adversary's kids. Jesus says they are murderers. They are murderers. Satan was a murderer from the beginning, he says. And, and, uh, and so those who are his kids are murderers. Now before you say, whew, that's not me. I have never murdered anyone, right? So I'm not on this side of the aisle, all right? Before you say that, let me remind you what Jesus told a, a bunch of us who were on a mountain listening to him speak. He said, you have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, this is our king, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire, to the valley, to the fires of the valley of Hinnon. 
There might not be too many of us in this room, hopefully no one, who's actually taken someone else's life and murder. But listen to what I'm going to say right now. And I know you, some of you will disagree, and that's okay, but there's a lot of murderers on Facebook. By Jesus' definition, there's a lot of people who murder others on social media by their words and how Jesus defined murder. And, uh, and you know what's really sad for me is that they murder in Jesus' name. I mean, they claim to be representing God, and, and, the pers- and, and they, are, they are murdering with their words by Jesus' definition. They are insulting, full of hate and anger against others. So let's be careful. You know, when, when, Jesus, when, when Jesus says the, the devil, the adversary, he was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus tells us, listen, that doesn't just mean actually taking someone's life. It talks, it's talking about the, the root of what leads us to take someone's life. Here's the last two, and I'm going to make them one. God's kids are truth-filled. Satan's kids are liars. You'll probably notice the antithesis, right? But, but really, it's there. That's what he says in this exchange. My, my followers, those who love God, they are truth-seekers. Those who are of the enemy, they, they are liars from the beginning because he's been a liar from the beginning. So it's, isn't it reasonable that the one we follow who said, I am the way, the truth and the life would expect that our lives be characterized by truth and light you know would he not expect that of us absolutely he does the sons of God are known for their truthfulness the sons of the enemy are known for their lying so you know because he's the father of lies so I I just here's a couple of just self-examination questions do you practice truthfulness or do you practice exaggeration and embellishment and the, and the spin characterize your speech? Do you own your own mistakes or do you spin, lie your accountability away onto someone else? Now, I, I tell you, I, I have struggled. I have wanted to be a truth person, but I have found at times I want to spin things to make myself look better. That's, that's not of our Father from Heaven, that's not what God desires of each of us, okay? Finally, big truth number five. Jesus claims to be God. Whatever you've heard about Jesus, please understand this. He claimed to be God. His friends understood that. His enemies understood that. And I want to tell you something. If your friends and your enemies both claim you said something, then there's a pretty good chance you actually said it, right? I mean, listen to what I just said. If your friends say you said something and your enemy said you said something, there's a pretty good chance that's what you said. And Jesus said it. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be your God. He claimed to be your creator. He claimed to be the one who would come and as God, taste death for us so that we would not have to taste eternal death. I don't know if you've been following the news, but this past week, Japanese uh, emperor uh, Naruhito stepped down. He was the son of Emperor Hirohito, who was the the emperor over Japan when World War II took place. And back in World War II days, uh, Hirohito was a god. He was claimed to be God. He claimed to be a god. The Japanese people worshipped him as a god. And uh, when we defeated Japan in World War II, MacArthur, this is really cool, MacArthur did not remove him from that imperial position, but instead made Hirohito come out to where he was and sign surrender papers. And one of the things that he had to, to sign was this declaration that he was not God. 
God, but that he was a man like all the rest of us. And of course, his son, who's ruled ever since then and just stepped down to allow his son to take the throne, he no longer claims to be a God. I tell you this story only to remind you that there have been many men who have claimed to be God throughout history. Many men have said, I am God, right? Only Jesus claimed to be God and then proved it by rising from uh, the dead. Now this morning, uh, I'd like to finish my talk. I have just a few minutes, but I'd like to finish my talk by encouraging you this morning in two ways. I want to encourage you to enter into a daddy-daughter or a daddy-son relationship with God. And if you're already there this morning, I want to encourage you with what a, ble- what, what a wonderful thing it is that we have a daddy-son relationship, that I have a daddy-son relationship with God. Um, God desires that of us. Ever since our rebellion uh, in sin against the Lord, we have uh, been separated from God in this rebellious state, but, but God sent forth Jesus to restore us from that rebellion, and the Bible calls our coming into his family as being adopted. Listen to Galatians. This is the Apostle Paul. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, that is Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that, he might re- that he, we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into, son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I tell you what, the import of that verse misses us, right? Because we, we don't use the word Abba. Abba is not a word. We use the word Daddy. Literally, that's, that's what he's saying. We have this Daddy-Father relationship. We can have that with God through adoption. So here's what I'd like to do to encourage you real quickly. I want to share with you, and there's so many things I could say here, but I want to share with you four, four quick attributes about God. What kind of father is God to us? Here's my first one. God loves us demonstrably. God loves us and he demonstrates it to us. The Bible writers are really, really clear about this. The Apostle Paul wrote, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. Romans 5.8, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Of course, you know the verse, John 3.16. And Jesus himself said to his followers, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. I read this online just, uh, just the other day. Many who reject Jesus say, God doesn't love us. He doesn't demonstrate his love towards us now. And, and you know, I disagree with them, but, but here's what they say. If God loved us, why are people dying of cancer? If God loved Barry Fry. Why would Barry be struggling with cancer? Or Sherry Atkins, why would they be fighting cancer now? If God loved us, why, why did Shepard die eight months ago? If God loves us, why do all these suffering things happen? Why, why are there poor in the world? Why is there injustice in the world? If God, that, that's what they say, God doesn't love us. It's a fantasy to say that God loves us. 
I, I want to say, I, I understand what they're saying, but I very much disagree. We, we could debate over why God allows suffering. I don't have time to do that. I do want to state why I believe God allows suffering. I believe God allows suffering, so giving us the opportunity to operate in libertarian freedom so that true love might flourish. But whether that's right or wrong, you know, I don't want to argue that. But here's what I do want to say. I think the cross of Jesus, if what the Bible records is true, and of course we believe it is, I believe the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us, and it stands as an eternal reminder of that. You know, um, others have abandoned you. Your earthly daddy may have abandoned you, but God did not abandon us on the cross. He he took it all the way to the end. Others may have broken their promises to you. Your daddy may have broken many promises to you. God did not break his promise to us that he would redeem us, that he would find a way for us to live forever in spite of our sin. Others have quit on you, but God does not quit on us, and Jesus did not quit on us on that cross. I read this little statement. I was going to read it. It's a quote. Lost soul, return home to God's love. Beloved saint, warm yourself in the flames of his love. God built an everlasting memorial of his love in his death atop a hill. From these heights, he proved his trustworthiness. He exalted his word of love by lifting up his mangled body unto death. His love stands as far beyond questioning as Jesus now stands exalted at the right hand of God. Here's a second attribute of our Father that I want to tell you about. God instructs us explicitly. You know, every good father teaches his children. The Proverbs, it says, teach your children so that even when they're old, they will have stayed with what you taught them their entire lives. That's what the Proverbs says. Teach your children. Every good father teaches his children. And by the way, dads, if you're not teaching your children, you're not being the dad God wants you to be. And you're definitely not the dad that he is because he does teach us. He gave us his word. Mine's on a tablet. But he gave us his word. And he gave us his spirit to teach me and to direct my steps. He, he, he instructs me all the way. And a nuance of his instruction is he disciplines me. When, when I'm wrong, he, he corrects me. Uh, every son that he receives, every daughter he receives, the Bible says, he disciplines. That's part of his instruction because he's a good, good father. Here's the third thing I wanted to tell you about God as a father. God forgives us readily. In the Old Testament, we read this from Isaiah. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Then in the New Testament, it says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, so many people, and maybe you're one of them, they, they have this idea that God is just, he's this dad who's listening around the corner for any time you mess up. And when you mess up, he's just waiting with his belt or his whatever to just whoop you and to beat you. I'm going to tell you, that might have been how your daddy was, but that is not the dad that God is. God disciplines us. But listen, beloved, you know, God forgives us. God is ready to forgive us our sins. This is not a sermon on forgiveness. So I I could, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to know God is not waiting to clobber you. God is waiting to restore you. That is his heart's desire. 
I'm saying this to my brother Donald. Hopefully he'll listen to this message via, you know, via the podcast. But, you know, God's not waiting to clobber us. God wants to restore you. And Jesus actually told a story. And you know the story, don't you? It's the story of this young son who just uh, really hurts his father, says, I don't care about you. All I want is my inheritance. Give it to me now. And then he goes and squanders it. And when, he, when he's wasted it all, he thinks, man, I'm going to go back. And I can't go back as a son, but I'm going to go back as a, as a, as a servant because they have it better than what I've got right now. But when he goes home, and here's the point of the story. And in the story, it tells us that every day, every day, you remember this in the story? Every day, the father is looking down the road saying, this is the day going to be the day my son's coming back. You know, a lot of people today, you know, pendulum swings are so easy. And I just want to warn you against pendulum swings, okay? So the pendulum swung, is it right? Does he swung? It went over on this side, okay? It was way out of balance, and, 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 and everything became all about us, you know, and God's just, it's all about us and God's love for us, and, and we became the center of it all. But I'm going to tell you, and some of you will disagree, and that's okay, but I think the pendulum went all the way to this side. And over here now, it's, it's, it's all about God's glory. And somehow, in talking about God's glory, I think we've missed that God's glory is found in his love for his creatures. His glory is found in his love for us. That, that is where the glory of God, I think, resides the brightest in the fact that God loves us and was willing to actually endure the penalty of death for us and was willing to humble himself and humiliate himself. Not just humble himself, but humiliate himself so that somehow we might be redeemed. I think the glory of God is seen in, in the loving kindness of God. I don't want you to miss this. God desires to restore you. And I've met many a person, and maybe you're sitting out there this morning, or maybe you're listening later, and you're that person. You feel like I've messed up so badly that God cannot restore me. I'm going to tell you something. You have not messed up so badly that God cannot restore you. The Father is looking, always longing for His children, those He's created children, to come and be relational children through adoption, for them to return to Him. And then finally, and I know I'm out of time, God will inherit us eternally. And uh, as a father, God wants you to inherit from Him. Uh, he will, you will inherit from Him and from, from the death and resurrection of Jesus. You will inherit your own resurrection and your own eternal life from which you will never die again. But here's the wonderful thing about that is you will not only not die again, but you will also inherit with that a new nature that has been fixed the sinful, broken part of our nature will be changed and we will be glorified. We will be made like the Lord Jesus, never to sin again, never to struggle with sin again. The Bible says that we are an heir of God's kingdom. We're an heir of God's kingdom. God's going to give us his kingdom in the future. But listen, there's something else. God wants to, listen, God wants to inherit you now with the, the person of his spirit, giving you a down pledge of your inheritance. He wants to give you his spirit who will change your life now. Listen to me, everyone. God wants to work in your life now so that you will be different than you are. You will go from being harsh and selfish to being kind and others focused. You'll go from fear and worry to peace and trust. 
God wants to change. It's not an overnight. It's not an immediate thing. But I'm telling you, when you're born again, all things are made new. And as you follow Christ, he begins to change your heart. Yesterday evening, you know, Rhett and, um, oh, Shannon, thank you. Sorry, I'm old. Uh, so Rhett and Shannon were married last night. And uh, so I was at the reception walking around and someone came up to me and they said, you know, I knew Rhett before he was a born-again Christian. And he said, the man that's standing there today is not the man he, that I knew before. So here's what I want to tell all of you. Jesus will inherit us future-wise and with something wonderful, but he wants to inherit us even now with this change in our lives. Watchman Nee tells of a new convert who came to him in great distress and great depression. And the man said, and I quote, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to the Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. You ever feel like that? That I just can't win? I just feel so defeated? Watchman Nee said to him, do you see that dog over there? He's my dog. He's house trained. He never makes a mess. He's obedient. He's a pure delight to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He's a total mess. But who is going to inherit my kingdom? My dog? No, my son, my heir. And then he said to the young man, you are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that that he died. We are Christ heirs, and our Father will inherit us. He will inherit us. So, I'm finished. Here's my, here's what I'd like to encourage you. Here's how I'd like you to respond to God's word this morning. For those of you that have a father, son, daddy, daughter, daddy, son relationship with God, I really want to encourage you to Warm yourself, to use those brothers' words, to warm yourselves in the flame of that love that we share with, with God. That he, he loves us. He's our dad. He cares about us. He's never going to abandon us. He's, he's going to walk us through everything that goes on in our lives. And I want you to warm yourself in, in that love this morning. But some of you may be here this morning and you don't have a daddy daddy-son, daddy daddy-daughter relationship with, with God. And I really want to encourage you this morning to receive Him, to open your heart and say, Lord, I want to walk into that relationship with you. I want you to be my dad. I want you to be the one that, that I, I experience love from, that I love, that's always going to... I want to be your child. You say, well, Jimmy, I don't know how to do that. Well, it's so simple. It really is. It costs Jesus so much, but it costs God so much. But it's so simple. It's a matter of by faith, just opening your heart and receiving him and saying, come into my life. Come into my, come into my life and I receive you and you're my God. It's just that simple. It's huge, but it's just that simple. But then I thought, as I thought about this talk this morning, I, I thought there's a third group of people that's maybe here, and I'm assuming this group of people can, can actually exist. And, and they're the people who have tasted the father, the daddy-son relationship, or they've tasted the daddy-daughter relationship, and somehow lost that. And you're like the, the son who grabbed up the inheritance and ran away, you know, and and one day says, man, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to tell you, listen, you may be here this morning and you may be the child that has 
walked away at some point. And you're here this morning and that's you. I, I really want to invite you this morning to, um, to come home. The daddy's looking down the road wondering when you're going to come home, wondering when you're going to come to your senses. Today might be that day. So let's bow our heads. Janet, I, I didn't ask you to do this, but if you would just play something for us. Because I think music helps us find our way into just a, a spot between us and God. So while you're in that spot, I, I just want to give you an opportunity to... I, I tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to... I know it's late, I know it's afternoon, but um, hey, I want to open the altar and just say if you want to come and if you need to come and just pray... We're going to open the altar for a few minutes for people to respond. But if this morning, you know, you need to find your way back, I'm here to help you. Maybe it's not that you've gotten lost along the way. Maybe today is the day you need to enter into this relationship with God. The one where He uh, just wants to be your daddy. He wants you to call Him Papa or Abba or whatever, whatever your term of endearment is for your daddy. you right now to do that. I just had this thought, thought thought I'd mention it, and uh, the thought I just had was maybe you're here this morning, and it's really been tough, and you've been suffering, and you've been wondering, you know, does God love me? Where's my dad? And somehow um, you feel far from him. I think I speak for him and say uh, he's not far he's not far he hasn't abandoned you or left you
Don't be troubled by the quiet, but we're just going to be quiet for another minute or two. We don't sing this song as a, as a church, but just with your, still your heads and hearts bowed before the Lord. And it's a song probably most of you know or have heard on the radio. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. I've seen many searching for answers far and wide, but I know we're all searching for answers only you provide because you know just what we need before we say a word. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you, and it's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Because you are perfect in all your ways. You are perfect in all your ways. You are perfect in all your ways to us. Oh, it's love so undeniable. I I can hardly speak. Peace so unexplainable. I, I can hardly think. As you call me deeper still. As you call me deeper still. As you call me deeper still. Into love, love, love. You are a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Father, thank you for being our good, good Father. And we pray these prayers, these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.